Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. This is the Low Level Hell Podcast, Episode 23. Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast program that explores the world of rotary and fixed-wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army helicopter pilot, Brian Harris. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Season 2, and we're starting a little bit later than planned, so I had intended to get us going, uh, you know, early part of October. Uh, but honestly, my schedule has been absolutely insane up here at Infinity uh, Flight School here in Trenton, New Jersey. And um, yeah, I've been flying a lot more than expected. And uh, if you've ever flown a lot, then uh, you definitely know it can start to take its toll on you. Uh, it's not that it's hard. It's just uh, after a while you get kind of mentally drained. So uh, it's been a little bit longer to get back into the saddle, but we are starting to do it. Um I'd like to update you guys on uh, the flight school here, just for those that are interested. Uh, but I'll keep that for the backside. Uh, that way, for those that aren't interested, you can just kind of get right into the show. Uh, but suffice to say, it's been pretty intense and uh, a lot of fun as well. So anyhow, we're starting up Season 2 here. Um, a couple, I guess, notes for the show. What I'm planning to do is I'm probably not going to plan to have two episodes a month. That is to say, I'm not going to stress myself out over holding myself to that sort of schedule. It's it's pretty intense. It's pretty hard. It was easier to do with COVID and nothing going on. But, you know, now that I'm actually working and doing things, it's a little bit harder to, to maintain. So I'm instead, I'm just going to kind of focus on, you know, quality versus quantity and uh, try to get the right guess. So right now I'm shooting for, you know, once a month. If I could do twice a month, that would be that would be great. And I've also got some different kind of show ideas and so not just uh, straight up interviews, but uh, some 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 other things that have been mulling around. In fact, I talked to a couple of guys this morning about it. So uh, look forward to sharing those with you here in the future and look forward to sharing this episode with you. I've been sitting on this one actually for a couple months because this uh, was my uh, reserve, uh, but I wanted to start the season off with it and uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So stay tuned. All right. David Casalio was a crew chief on the UH-1s in Vietnam at the 101st. He then went on to Army Flight School Flew the OH-6, the UH-1, and the C-12, among probably some other things. And you've had a pretty long and storied career after the Army. Uh, but we'll get into that. Thanks for uh, joining me on the show today, David. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you reaching out to me. Uh, I guess you've been listening to the show, and uh, we've been talking for a couple months. So I'm certainly glad to have you on and, and hear some of these experiences. We've talked before, and just an incredible career. But uh, how did you get started in aviation? I was uh, born in aviation. My dad was a uh, Air Force uh, aviator, navigator, bombardier, um, mainly flew um, in SAC. Um, and uh, when I was in high school, I was in Civil Air Patrol. I w- worked at the airport, local airport, uh, fueling airplanes and washing airplanes. And uh I didn't do too well in high school, so I was uh, I volunteered for the draft and 
mm-hmm. uh, was sent to sent to Vietnam, and uh, of course, I always uh, loved aviation and wanted to fly. So for me, it was a perfect fit. Um, came back from Vietnam and uh, took a year off and went to. Uh, Went to apply for flight school at Warren Officer Flight and also OCS. OCS came back first and went to OCS and then was an artillery officer and then went to uh, flight school after that, put in for flight school, got accepted for flight school and and, uh, stayed in as an aviator for the rest of my duration. So you volunteered for the draft. I imagine that was fairly uncommon. Yeah, it was fairly uncommon, but um, <laughs> I come from a family that was uh, very, very, very patriotic, and I can tell you some funny stories um, about letters I used to get while I was in Vietnam. So, I mean, tell us about that early part. I mean, you enlisted. Did you enlist uh, to be a crew chief, or did they select that for you? How'd that work out? No, actually, actually I uh, I went to Vietnam as a 13 Echo uh, which was a forward observer artillery, and I was sent to the 4th Division. Um, when I got to the 4th Division, they told me that the division was going to be standing down and going going home. So two months after I was there, I was transferred up to the 101st, and I said I want to volunteer to be a door gunner. And uh, they were more than happy to oblige because the war was still going on up at the I-Corps area. So mm-hmm. I got to my unit, and because of my aviation background and interest, they immediately made me a crew chief. So that's that's how that went. Okay. So so it was all on-the-job training in theater? On-the-job on training. Yes, sir. So, I mean, what was that like? Was that pretty fascinating? Was it terrifying? Like, like talk a little bit about those, those first couple flights. Um, the first couple of flights were was during monsoon season, so it was uh, pretty cold. Um, we were just doing ash and trash resupply missions. Nothing really earth shattering. Um, of course, I enjoyed the the uh, flying aspect of it and the excitement of that. It was certainly better than being on the ground in the bush. Um, although the fourth, I have to regress a little bit. When I was with the fourth division. There was very little uh, contact activity going on with the enemy because I think the enemy knew the 4th Division was going to be pulling out. And so there was – and most of the people in the 4th Division knew they were going to be either sent home early or sent to another unit. So nobody was um, mm. overly anxious to uh, risk a contact. So I saw very little contact with the 4th Division. When I got to the 101st, different story. Mm. Um we flew um, resupply missions supporting the infantry. Um, we also flew ad hoc uh, medevac missions if needed, if we happened to be in the area. And we also flew a mission called CCN, which was, this is prior to Delta Force. So there was no Delta Force, but CCN was a mission we would fly cross border into Laos and crossed into the DMZ, across the DMZ into North Vietnam. And those were very exciting missions. We first mission I flew, we flew to a special forces compound uh, up by Quang Tri. There was no one uh, from, if I remember correctly, there was no way for them to drive a vehicle in there. I'm sure there was a way, but, but the only way we could get in there was to fly in there in a helicopter. We arrived 
Um, I was told I had to take my dog tags off and uh, my uniform with my name tag uh, was given a flight suit uh, shirt with no name on it and uh, signed papers saying that if we got shot down on this particular mission that um, the government or the army would uh, not acknowledge that we were in the area that we were going to. So it was pretty, some pretty high speed stuff. And then the, People that we were flying showed up and they weren't wearing any specific kind of uniforms. They were, and they were wearing all there. They were uh, carrying different types of weapons. Some had AKs, some had Swedish Ks, a, uh, all different uh, kinds of guys. So they were definitely black ops and uh, we were taking them into uh, North Vietnam across the border, um, dropping them off. And then, uh, later on, another, uh, another op would go in to either pick them up at a different location, or if they were capturing intel, there would be another insertion to go pick them up and, and get the, uh, the team and the intel out. Hmm. They were very well coordinated missions. Um, usually two Hueys to insert the team, two Hueys and standoff, kind of a QRF operation two Cobras, and we either had two F-4 Phantoms or two Sandys with a FACT Covey, uh, a light observation uh, Air Force aircraft uh, above us. So we would go in with the two Hueys, two Cobras uh, flying close cover for the insertion, and then the uh, Air Force uh, F-4s or uh Sandys would be standing off in case they needed uh, more air cover for the uh, in case things went bad. And then for listeners who don't know some of these things, the, the Sandy you're referring to is the the A1 Sky Raider, That's which correct. is a, a pretty beefy looking prop plane um, that the Air Force and I think the Navy used it too uh, yeah. for 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 close air support and. Uh, all accounts that I've heard is it was a tough plane to fly, but everyone on the ground loved it. And then uh, you mentioned the FAC, a forward air controller. So somebody that's able to direct those airstrikes uh, close to friendly forces. Correct. So it's interesting, you know, Vietnam to me is this, this is such a crazy war because it's, there's a duality to it, right? You've got these, you know, on one hand, when you think about Vietnam, you think of this counterinsurgency and, you know, guys sneaking around in the bushes. And then on the other side of it, you hear about the air war and, and you know, SAM missiles and, and radars and stuff like that. Did, did your experience ever cross from one line to the other? You know, you're doing all this flying around into North Vietnam and the Laos. Was there ever concerns about radars and jets or is it totally worried about the, the guy in the bushes shooting at you with an AK? Mostly it was the guy in the bushes. Um in i we were susceptible to, of course, small arms fire and 51 caliber uh, stuff. However, when and later on when we talk about Lamson 719, when we supported the insertion into Laos, different story. We were exposed to small arms, 51 caliber, 23 millimeter, 37 millimeter, and towards the end of the operation, they were just getting the SA-7 uh uh, man pads into uh, the field for the uh, NVA to be using. And there, there were helicopters that were shot at and shot down with that. 
And SA-7 being a shoulder-fired infrared uh, missile. Okay. Correct. Correct. And that's when they came out with that toilet bowl modification for the exhaust for the Hueys and the Cobras. Okay. Kind of redirect all the, the heat coming out of the exhaust. Okay. Right. But but that didn't come, that mod, that field modification didn't come out until after a few aircraft were shot down. Yeah. Well, that's it's generally how it works, right? The yeah. first couple of guys have got to be the unfortunate victims before things change. Um, okay. The story I was told, that's how we ended up with um, crash-worthy fuel systems when uh, uh, the casualty rate for aviators being burned after crashes and surviving got to be so extensive, they finally came out with a modification to modify the uh, fuel system on the Huey to a crash-worthy fuel system. That's unfortunate. You definitely don't want to be the guys that discover that for everyone else. That's, that's, that's a bad correct. day. Yeah. So. So, and we'll get into Lamson here in a little bit, but uh, just in general, what was a what was an average day like for a for a crew chief in Vietnam? Well, average day was um, you would uh, normally get your ops uh, operations would uh, assign a mission the night before. Uh, so you you got up early in the morning uh, before breakfast. And you'd go down to the aircraft. The aircraft were all assigned to crew chiefs. Um, door gunners floated between aircraft. Um, and then, of course, the uh, pilots would be assigned an aircraft. So you didn't always fly with the same pilots all the time. Right. So you would go down, pre-flight the aircraft, uh, get the guns loaded. Uh, we carried uh, two M60s, which is uh, – in today's world is the saw, I guess. Uh, they don't mm-hmm. use the M60, but it, the saw is basically an outshoot of the uh, M60. And um, we modified those guns so that we could have a higher cyclic rate of fire. Did some simple things like added another uh, spring in the feed tray cover, stretched the uh, uh, recoil spring in the uh, hmm. lower portion of it, and we would do, uh, uh, we would use aviation oil to oil the uh, guns and the uh, oil, the ammunition in the uh, uh, ammunition tray. Um, mm. We ended up carrying the minigun uh, trays with uh, almost 3,000 rounds of ammo. We, uh, the same minigun tray that uh, you would use to load a Cobra or, or a Charlie model gunship. We carried those instead of those little. You see pictures of them sometimes in uh, in uh, Vietnam pictures. There, it was a pretty small ammunition tray. Well, we carried three thousand rounds, so and we <laughs> used a seat belt to attach that to the to the gun mount. And then I would always pour uh, aviation oil on it to keep the the rounds lubricated, and then put a cover on it, cut a hole in it so that the uh, the belt could be fed out pretty easily and then we used a sea ration can on the m60 to help feed the uh, ammunition so we had a we had a pretty good uh, pretty good system that, and it beefed up the rate of fire on the gun of course you'd burn through barrels on a hot lz so we always carried extra barrel and huh. uh, and the other thing that we would do is you'd bring your uh, 25 hour inspection kit with you because uh, you had to do oil samples and fuel samples and uh, check the uh, tail rotor uh, torque links and stuff, uh, you know, on their time schedules. So you, a lot of times you did that in the field while 
in between missions. So you guys were typically just kind of doing resupply runs around what, what we, we would call modern day kind of ring routes? Yeah, um, we did do that. Um, we supported, uh, you know, the uh, uh, infantry battalions in the 101st and uh, – and we do some other stuff for MACV, which was the uh, uh, group that supported the Arvin uh, Army. So we do some support for I, – I remember flying for the uh, Arvin Marines, uh, Vietnam Marines, Vietnam mm-hmm. Marines, if you want to call it that. And then uh, some Arvin folks uh, in the area. But most of the stuff we did was for the uh, grunts in the 101st and we would do resupply and battalion moves and company moves uh, all in I-Corps area was uh, also where Ashaw Valley was and there's some infamous uh, places, fire bases and uh, hills there, the Hamburger Hills located there and uh, Mm -hmm. fire base uh, Ripcord which my unit uh, 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 evacuated all were part of the, the Ashaw Valley operation. I think when people think about Hueys in Vietnam, you know, they, they have the, the mental image that we've seen in so many movies of, of landing in a, a rice paddy or field somewhere and the door gunners are just shooting, you know, into the woods and stuff. I mean, how, what was that like? How accurate are those kind of images that we have in our heads of, of putting guys into a hot LZ? That, uh, pretty accurate, um, and it depends on – we did uh, – a lot of the uh, terrain in I-Corps um, was mountainous and jungle. Um, the rice paddy low-lying area was down towards the coast, so we did go into those areas. But for the most part, where we went into – we went into a lot of what we called hover holes where, you know, you have uh, jungle vegetation and trees that stick up sometimes 50 to a hundred feet and uh, triple canopy jungle is like that. So they would have to either drop a daisy cutter in there to cut out an LZ or the grunts, if they were able to would be uh, dropped in by ladder and they would go in uh, and cut, cut the trees down so we could and literally hover down and you would be uh, hopefully not being shot at, but you'd be telling the uh, pilot, you know, you know, bring the nose left four feet, tail right four feet, yeah. hover down, hover down, you know, hold your hover. We would literally be talking them straight down. And uh, hmm. so it could be interesting. But the, it, as far as going into a hot LZ, if the LZ was considered hot and you or you were taking fire, there was no uh, – nobody had to ask me twice to shoot. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, how often were there other assets involved in these? Like, was there artillery going on? Was there, there bombing strikes going on? Absolutely there were. And, uh, and well, one of the things that, uh, we always had, uh, in our battalion, 158th Aviation Battalion, there were three assault helicopter companies and one Cobra unit. And, uh, that's how the, the task structure was set up, uh, in the 101st. So, um, the uh, Cobras actually were always with us and they would come in. If you were going into an LZ that was considered hot or possibly hot, they were, they were firing rockets and uh, supporting us as we went into the LZ. And they, um, the saying was sometimes 
they would be putting rockets between the skids of the Hueys going in, and they were pretty close to that. But uh, they would be firing and supporting going in. Prior to going into the LZ, there was always an artillery prep or an airstrike that would uh, go in to, to uh, prep the LZ. Well, I, I know we t- touched on it before. Let's talk about Lamson and, uh, I mean, just give us kind of a, a background of what that was all about, and then we'll go from there. Okay. Well, um, first of all, for anyone listening, there's several books out about uh, Lamson. There's one by uh, Keith Nolan. It's probably the most uh, detailed one. It's called Into Laos. Um, very good book. And then there's another one, Lamson 719. That was uh, written by a, a, a general who was involved, a Vietnamese general who was involved in that. But the crux of the mission was we were to support Arvin, South Vietnamese forces, uh, going into Laos along Route 9, which ran from the coast of uh, South Vietnam into Laos with the final objective being a crossroads village called Chapone, which was about 25, 30 miles inside the border. Now, Chapone was part of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And most people think of the Ho Chi Minh Trail as this one dirt trail that runs through the jungle and through the woods uh, in Southeast Asia. It, It was that time's a hundred or a thousand because there were a lot of little trails that paralleled and splintered down and some were roads and some were trails. And, um, it was, uh, a constant source of, uh, interdiction by the air force and the Navy. Um, but it was also a very well defended area because it was important to the enemy. And we found out that, there was an operation going on in uh, late January. Yeah, late January of 2000 of uh, 1971. And literally what happened in i any available space for helicopters was immediately taken over. There were helicopters that were flown up from uh, down south in Vietnam and, uh, they were they were parked everywhere along along roads along any place that uh, you could put uh, a company or a battalion of helicopters. So hmm. overnight, all of a sudden, I Corps became like this giant uh, helicopter base. Um, and I can't emphasize the amount of helicopters there were because uh, the Marines came up with their H fifty threes and their twin engine Cobras and some of their Hueys. Um, hmm. The helicopters from down south, uh, down that were typically flown, flying down in, uh, the Delta area were all brought up. So this was a, a large, this was going to be a large operation. Um, mm. now when they first showed up and we saw the buildup, all of us were thinking, Oh my God, we're, we're going into North Vietnam. We're going to, we're going to invade North Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. Well, that wasn't the case. And of course, we weren't told exactly what we were gonna what was gonna happen until just before we launched into uh, into Laos. So the operation started where they had to retake the Quezon base, which had been um, up until that time had been 
uh, considered bad guy country after mm-hmm. we uh, evacuated the Marines from the uh, caisson back in 67. So that area had to be retaken. So there was uh, uh, American forces were used to retake those areas so that we could get uh, supplies and rebuild the caisson air base. But once that was done, then we would redeploy up to Quezon and we'd get our mission briefs and uh, then we would be sent into Laos. The actual invasion started on uh, February 8th and that was the first insertion. It, it was the largest helicopter operation in the history of um, warfare. There's never been and probably never will be an operation that large that flew that many helicopters. We would typically go across the border into Laos. We would move battalions, uh, size elements, and hopscotch them into areas along the, uh, the route into uh, Laos. Um, it would be 40 to 60 helicopter insertion. Wow. Yeah, so it was it was a big op. Um, the first day we went across the border, we went across the border at uh, pretty low altitude, not um, not ex- extremely high. But uh, the uh, bad guys, the enemy was waiting. They knew we were coming. Um, of course, uh, as I found out later from letters from home, my parents knew we were going into Laos before I did. Um, <laughs> So anyways, the, the operation started, they went across, we went across the border and we started taking uh, heavy 51 caliber fire before we ever even got to the LZs and mm. uh, small arms fire was almost a given as we got closer. Um, sometimes they would mortar the LZ um, once they established where we were going and uh, mm. so we had to deal with mortars coming in. Um mm. RPGs were a big factor. The enemy liked to wait uh, until an aircraft was decelerating uh, into the LZ, slowing down, and uh, shoot an RPG at you. Um, we lost uh, a helicopter to to an RPG hit. Um, my unit, uh, just to give you a little history of Charlie Company 158th Aviation, in the course of its two-year span in Southeast Asia, lost 37 people in two years. Wow. Uh, 14 of those people we lost in little over two and a half months in Vietnam while I was there. So mm-hmm. the uh, intensity of what we were going through uh, cannot be over underemphasized. Yeah. It was uh, not a question of if you were going to get shot down, it was when you were going to get shot down. And there were some in my unit that were shot down more, more than once. Sure. So the first day of operation, uh, we lost an aircraft, took a uh, heavy caliber. We're not sure what it was uh, through the tail rotor drive shaft. Uh, they tried to turn around and go back to Quezon. And in the process, whatever happened, whatever they were hit with, uh, they had lost tail rotor authority. Um, 
and they were able to keep the aircraft flying somewhat. But whatever they were hit with uh, eventually caused a, uh, a failure, a major failure of some sort, because the aircraft was seen rolling, inverted, and crashed. Everybody was mm-hmm. killed. Uh, had 20 aircraft in our company, and towards the middle of the operation, we could only field maybe eight aircraft because we had lost uh, aircraft. At, at the end of the operation, there was only one aircraft that was part of the original Phoenix, uh, you know, tail numbers that we had because we had replaced everything else because they'd either wow. been shot up or shot down. So hmm. uh, that's, uh, that's the intensity of it. And, it was not unusual to go to a briefing in Quezon, and the briefing would go something like this. Um, we're going into an LZ. There's going to be an artillery prep. The Air Force went in this morning and pulled off station because the uh, AAA and the anti-aircraft fire was too intense. And we would look at each other and say, <laughs> if the Air Force doesn't want to go in there and they're in a jet that can get out of the area pretty quick, yeah. we're going to fly 40 or 60 helicopters in there. Yeah. And they would be in a, we would be in a, uh, like a daisy train, a daisy trail. Yeah. Uh, so these helicopters would be going across the border. You would see this line of helicopters yeah. all at the same altitude, all going to the same place. And if you were a North Vietnamese uh, gunner, this was a, a great opportunity to learn how to shoot down a helicopter because all you had to do is aim at the first one and, See where yeah. you see if you were hitting anybody in the trail. You would eventually get somebody. So there's there's people listening to this right now. I guarantee my dad's listening to this right now, and he's like, "Why in the hell would they make them fly like that?" What well, I mean, because you're right. There's yeah. going to be a mass of aircraft, but I mean, were there any efforts to try to break these formations up and come from different directions, or was it just the terrain, just the planning capability? I can't. I can't answer to the planning capabilities. I I can tell you that we did zigzag a, a little bit uh, and try to stagger and move um, uh, up and down to try to uh, alleviate any chances of being hit. Um, we uh, we went across the border at a, uh, somewhere around fifteen hundred feet initially. Then we raised it to three thousand, and finally we went across the border about six thousand feet. And then we would drop down into the LZs, and so a lot of the a lot of the fire we were getting at was in close to the LZ. So um, I actually have some. I was able to locate some recordings that I'll play for you uh, that'll kind of give you the idea of what it was like to go into one LZ. Because as you can imagine, forty to sixty helicopters, everybody excited. Everybody in the lead portion that was close to the LZ is starting to take hits and take fire. So a lot of people talking, a lot of people excited, uh, a lot of uh, high energy going on. Yeah. But this was a a daily routine, and uh, there were a couple of days during the operation. The operation lasted just a little over six weeks. Um, and that doesn't count the actual evacuation of Quezon because once, once they pulled out of Laos, um, we were not, uh, we didn't just pull out of Quezon. We had to gradually move out of Quezon and, and the enemy was, um, 
was uh, very much uh, aggravated over the fact that we had gone into Laos and they they let us know on a daily basis by rocketing and mortaring caisson uh, Mm. towards the end that uh, we were not welcome in their area. The only place that the anti-aircraft fire was more intense was in North Vietnam, in, in the Hanoi and Haiphong area. The area around Chapon was second to that. So this was not, this, the, um, the, the army put out a, 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 a book of, um, statistics and chronicles on the Vietnam War and, they labeled this as a uh, mid-intensity conventional air mobile assault because it was uh, all of that and more. What uh, what was the flight time from Kaesong to a lot of these places that you had to go to, um, roughly? It, not long. I mean, you're, uh, Kaesong, if you look at the map, Kaesong's not too far from the border of Laos. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it, it wasn't wasn't a long flight from uh, uh, Kaesan. You could, you know, you did. We hot refueled in Kaesan. That was uh, one thing that uh, we did on a regular basis. Um, we would do an insert. The the, uh, the day I was shot down, um, we had it was a battalion move. We had inserted uh, into the LZ. It was LZ Liz, which was on a pretty high escarpment just south of uh, Route 9. Route 9 is the road that ran from uh, Vietnam into Laos and uh, into the village of Chapon. The escarpment was to the south of that, and there were several LZs that we cut out um, on the escarpment uh, to support the uh, Arvin uh, troops on the ground. Uh, by the way, the Arvin, Arvin troops, they was an armor battalion with them so they went across the border with uh with armor um mm-hmm. one thing i'd point out that the terrain in laos was a lot like the terrain in uh northern california uh a lot of high grass um n- not a lot of jungle until you got on the high ground which the escarpment was part of um the lz that i got shot down and had been cut out by a daisy cutter so the the uh People that aren't familiar with a daisy cutter, it's, it's pretty huge uh, um, ordnance that's either dropped from a sky crane or a C-130 or a Chinook, and uh, it detonates at a point above the ground so that it cuts the trees down uh, in the LZ. And as you go out from the LZ, the stumps and the trees gradually get larger uh, and more protruding. Uh, mm. because the blast didn't, you know, extend that far. Sure. So that's that's the LZ we were going into. And um, we inserted the troops in. We didn't take any fire going in the first insertion. The second insertion, uh, we started in. We turned. We started dropping down from altitude, started our final approach in. And uh, I could feel uh, something hitting the side of the aircraft. I could, I could feel it through the floor or the, you know, on my boots. And, uh, I looked at, I leaned out the side of the aircraft to see what was going on. And I could see, 
I could see rounds impacting on the tail boom and kind of moving closer to me. And some rounds landed in the transmission well area. Um, a round hit uh, an Arvin soldier sitting next to me or near me, and uh, I'm sure he was killed. I'm, and then uh, several rounds ended up in a uh, cockpit area, hit the uh, the uh, aircraft commander in the leg, uh, blew out his knee, and uh, mm. he uh, yelled on the intercom that he was hit. And uh, he decelerated the aircraft. Thank God he did that because otherwise we would have drove uh, nose first into the LZ at about 80 knots. Hmm. Instead, we hit the LZ tail first at 80 knots, which decelerated us enough. But it also broke the uh, the tail boom and uh, caused the aircraft to flip a start spinning. And it ended up flipping inverted and slid down the hill. Um, once we came to a rest. Uh, was leaning on the left side, which is crew chief side. I was went up to the cockpit, pulled the guy out, the wounded pilot out, and uh, carried him up the hill. And uh, the whole time this is going on, while we're going up the hill, I, I look up the hill, I see another helicopter um, there. They had seen us crash. That was being mm-hmm. piloted by a warrant officer, Butch Doan, and Captain uh, Don Davis. And uh, they'd saw us crash and waited to see if there were any survivors, which there were. And uh, we started up the hill and trying to negotiate these logs. And we're getting shot at the whole time we're going up the hill. Mm-hmm. Um, get to the aircraft. Everybody gets loaded on. We get the wounded pilot on board. I'm the last one on the aircraft. I climb into the aircraft. And the door gunner on that aircraft is wounded. The greenhouse and overhead circuit breaker panel on the Huey is completely shot out. Hmm. They can't, the crew can't talk to each other because the ICS has been shot at. The right seat had taken several rounds through the door. How they missed Captain uh, Don Davis, I'll never know because it right. rounds actually penetrated his flight suit, but never, uh, yeah. never got him. Yeah. Um, I didn't honestly think the aircraft was going to get out of the LZ. I thought it was so shot up that it wasn't going to make it. And uh, Butch Stone very casually leaned back and looked at me and said, what took you so long? So uh, <laughs> I replied, I, I thought I got up here pretty good considering I weigh 140 pounds and the guy I was carrying weighed about 215, 220. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you're going <laughs> So we got out of there. Um, we got to back to Quezon. I, if I remember correctly, that aircraft was Red X. It, it couldn't fly anymore after that because of how much damage it had incurred. Wow. Uh, the next day, they, we went back. I didn't fly the next day. The next day, the, uh, we lost the crew killed. And I have the recording of that insertion. Uh, 
six, we got a uh, gunfire, uh, it just exploded. All right, here, continue, Mark, we'll try to spot it. Got two ships down, one just crashed and burned. All Dragon aircraft goes south of the RV, south of the RV, south of the just... Okay. And both just to the west of the LZ. Two west. And Dragon's not more than two clicks. That's about uh, one, uh, one to one and a half clicks due west of the uh, LZ. Trail, what's your position? 23 millimeter, all the way down this flight path. You've got to remain south of the river. Grab some altitude coming in here. Start your descent as you approach into the LZ. Tell these guys to unass this thing. Get all the LZ and crash. Watch out, I'm short of Jesus Christ, that thing went up. Can we go back and see if that guy's okay? So, hmm. that's, that's just one insertion. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, um, and this went on almost daily. Um, there's an outfit uh, that came up from the south. They were actually featured on the History Channel, uh, the Blue Stars. Um, they had these Charlie model gunships, and they just got annihilated uh, on the other going into Laos. Hmm. Um, so it was uh, – it was definitely an eye-opening experience for me. Um, I don't, I don't think any of us in my unit, at least in my recollection, thought we were going to live through that. And uh, you would wake up in the morning and get ready for the flight, wondering if you were going to be alive by the end of the day. And this was six weeks, you said. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was like that. We. Uh, like I said, there was only a couple of times when we couldn't muster enough aircraft to fly, and our uh, our company commander, a uh, fellow by the name of Jim Lloyd, probably one of the finest uh, aircraft command or uh, uh, company commanders um, in the army, uh, just an outstanding guy, led from the beginning or from the front, um, just a really good good leader. Uh, he. Had, he would tell us that we have to stand down. I can't get enough people. I can't get enough aircraft to fly. All these operations, were they taking guys in and then bringing them back out when they were done? Or was it dropping dudes off and they were staying there? And then you were bringing more dudes in the next day? Yes and yes and yes. So okay. um, depending on what we were doing for the day, we may be bringing troops in, inserting them, Um we may be pulling wounded out, which there were a lot of. Um, yeah. The the Arvin forces were taking heavy losses. Uh, it was not unusual for a battalion uh, to have suffered so many losses that you would have a junior grade officer or even a uh, NCO in charge of the battalion because of the losses they took. Hmm. Um. I can remember towards when, when the intensity of the ground operation really started to um, not go well, which really didn't start going well from the beginning from my point of view, but when it really started not going well, uh, North Vietnamese were, had brought in uh, T-76 tanks. There were, there was, uh, they were um, causing a lot of, uh, 
casualties to the Arvin soldiers. Um, so the Arvin soldiers started to uh, panic or rout. Um, mm. We would go into the NLZ to resupply. They would be asking for resupply. As soon as we'd uh, pull into an LZ, they would mob the helicopter. And there mm. were several instances where Hueys would be coming out of the LZs there and literally people were hanging on to the skids, to the doors. The, the, the aircraft was overloaded. Mm. And uh, I, I can remember uh, at Quezon, a news correspondent came up to me uh, after we brought in a load of uh, uh, panicked Arvin soldiers and asked me, how many how many people does this Huey hold? And I said, well, it holds seven American troops, and apparently it holds about 20 Arvin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. But uh, it, we ended up uh, bringing uh, like a, a stick or a, um, a large screwdriver to you know, try to knock these guys off because wow. uh, unfortunately they would be hanging onto the skids and uh, you know, the, you're pulling out of an LZ, you'd be 20, 30, 40, sometimes a couple of hundred feet in the air before they would let go. Yeah. Um, so it was pretty, um, pretty traumatic to see that kind of stuff going on. Um, and we dealt with that on a regular basis. There was, uh, wow. they would, they would panic and swarm the aircraft because they weren't in a very good situation, and um, I, I'm, I know if we hadn't have been picked up when I got shot down, if, if we had not been lucky enough to be picked up by Butch Doan, we, we probably would have been killed or captured and then killed. Yeah, that's insane. I mean, and in, in the danger to the aircraft and the air crew with all these people mobbing them and, and I mean, it's weight and balance issue at that point, and... Oh, yeah. Putting everyone at risk. Well, fortunately, Arvin soldiers' statures are, you know, they, they're not they're <laughs> not really they're not really big guys. And they weren't in a hurry to bring a lot of belongings either. Yeah. They were looking to get out of there. The operation, uh, uh, they never, they, they, they were able to capture a lot of uh, arms caches and um, cause some, slow down to the uh, interdiction of uh, North Vietnamese supplies into South Vietnam, but then we, they never stopped it. Um, in fact, once the operation was over and we pulled back into Laos, that was the beginning of the end really for the South Vietnamese uh, and the South Vietnamese army uh, because right. the, the North Vietnamese were moving uh, by this time, we're moving tanks down into uh South Vietnam, they were they certainly were becoming more uh, bolden in what they were doing, and in uh, mm. the history shows that they were successful at that. Because the whole point of this operation was supposed to be this this master stroke to to show the Arvin are capable of doing things, and it was supposed to yep. you know cut the cut the trail. But when it when it didn't work out, I mean. Just, I mean, just guys running to hang on to skids it well, indicates that the morale was broken. And yeah, like I said, at the beginning of the end. Yeah, they, they were terrified. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I have the utmost respect for the North Vietnamese Army and, and the Viet Cong because they were mm. um, dedicated soldiers. They were willing to die uh, to accomplish their mission. And uh, they lived under some 
tre- uh, tremendous conditions that uh, uh, I don't know that uh, American troops or U.S. troops would uh, would have done the same thing. Right. So uh, I have the utmost respect for them. Um, I think uh, that news reporter Joe Galloway said, you know, we there was a comment where somebody in the leadership in Washington said, we'll bomb them into the Stone Age. And Joe Galloway said, well, hell, they, they weren't that far from the Stone Age. Right. Um, yeah. But they were able to adapt and operate, um, and they did it very successfully. I might yeah. point out that some of the area around La- uh, that in that Laos operation, there were caves and um, tunnels that were dug back when the Japanese controlled that area in World War II. So they they had ready-made sanctuaries where they could roll 51 calibers or 23 or 37 millimeter stuff out and shoot Mm. and then roll it back in and hide it. Mm. And they were very successful with that. Yeah. Yeah. There's something to be said for the, the, you know, the saying that hard, hard times make hard men. And like I said, the conditions and just the culture and, and all the, you know, there's a lot of history leading up to that, right? I mean, it's not just the Vietnam war just broke out one day. I mean, there's a, there's a ton of history leading up to that. So they were, yeah. Uh, in a lot of ways prepared for the things that they had to do. And, you know, from the American side, for the for the average Joe, it was kind of just being thrust into something that had already been cultivated and, and created for, for the other side for quite some time. So, yeah. The a- aviation in, in uh, Vietnam, uh, from scout helicopters to uh, Cobras, the evolution and all that was uh, pretty remarkable. And, um you know, if you look at the history of uh, Army aviation, the, beginning in Vietnam, they were flying those uh, H-21s and H-34s. And um, yeah. I, I do have a story about uh, Laos with the Arvin uh, Army came in with two, two H-34s, which is a RECIP uh, radial engine helicopter, old Sikorsky helicopter. Um, mm-hmm. And they had two brand new Hueys with mini guns and rockets and they were brand new right off the boat H model Hueys and they went into uh, an LZ, I believe it was LZ Louie into Laos to help evacuate or resupply. I wasn't quite sure, but they took off out of Quezon. We watched them go across the border and a little while later, one of the Hueys comes back and it was smoking. It was shot up. The pilot was wounded. He landed. We pulled him out. Uh, the other pilot was dead. The crew chief and door gunner were no longer in the aircraft. I don't know what happened to them. And uh, we ended up shutting the aircraft down for them because they had to, you know, medevac out. But uh, those, all three of those aircraft were left in Laos. They were, you know, burning, uh, burning hulks. There's a famous picture of LZ Lolo, which has six or seven burned out Hueys in the LZ and on the fire base. And that doesn't count what was around the area because there were numerous helicopters that made it out of Lolo, but ended up crashing someplace else along the route. Yeah. I just, I can't imagine the feeling like you said before of, of waking up and, and knowing that this could be it because just just because of the the statistics you know of every day of what you're seeing and, and being around you know that it's not to say that it's not dangerous in Afghanistan and Iraq in the modern day because there are some pretty complex 
you know, weapon systems out there. And plus that, you know, a lot of the same tricks and, and, mm-hmm. and things that you're talking about that, you know, you know, cause you, you were overseas as well in Iraq, but the, those guys kind of do the same tricks, but um, you just never saw the amount of, of damage that, that you're talking about and that others have talked about as well in, in Vietnam. And yeah, it, it's incredible. And, yeah. and really, I mean, aviation was just starting up and so that's a hell of a way to cut your teeth and, and learn your trade. Well, exactly. I mean, um, there were other hot LZs down in in South Vietnam that were equally as uh, treacherous. I mean, we lost <clears throat> we lost a couple of helicopters on those CCN missions as well, and uh, those were those were intense. But they were small. It was a, compared to what we were doing in Lamson. They were very small operations. Going across the border too. What a lot of uh, I didn't uh, share with you is. You know, you had artillery going across over the top of you, a max word for the artillery. You had uh, uh, airstrikes for with the Air Force and the Navy and B-52 strikes further in. Um, it was it was um, a pretty wild show. Um, yeah, and imagine. The intensity and the veracity and the the amount of uh, aircraft was staggering. I, yeah. I can't overemphasize there were, we had a few midairs in that operation where the, mm. because aircraft, you know, were dodging fire and run into each other. We've had that happen, yeah. but uh, it's amazing that we didn't have more. Right. Yeah. I was just thinking before you said that the airspace planning and, and coordination alone you know, having done planning for, for operations much smaller than what you're talking about, it, it's always a huge concern when you've got that much stuff moving through the air. Sure. You know, you're talking about the artillery and, uh, you know, which is always fun to calculate because it, it changes altitude. You know, every every inch that it travels, it's at a different altitude. And so you're right. trying to find these these right spots to, well, you can go under it here, but you can't go under it here. And and you got jets coming in and dropping bombs. And, and like you said, the helicopter, just the sheer volume of helicopters moving together. Um, and then evading fire. I mean, that's one of those things that I'm always glad I was a, a scout gun guy is I didn't really have to fly close to other aircraft because uh, that was a concern. But, you know, I've, I've supported many of air assaults and movements where, yeah, you see those guys kind of tucked in close and they kind of have to be because for a variety of reasons. And one is, quite frankly, this is the door gunners. I mean, the yeah. way it was described to me is the you know, just like the old B-17s and, and everything in World War II, you know, they flew in such a formation that the, the guns overlapped so they could protect each other. And kind of the same concept with the door gunners is you, you want to have the aircraft relatively close together in some respects. And of course, coming into the LZ, you've got to, you got to tuck in tight to make sure everybody can fit. But yeah, as soon as, as soon as Chalk 2 starts taking RPGs from the right and he wants to turn left to get away from it, that's a problem for Chalk 3. Sure. So after that operation concluded, how much more time did you have in Vietnam? Uh, the operation stopped. Uh, I got shot down on March 4th, and towards the end of March, I think, is when the operation finally uh, wound down. When I say wound down, I mean we started pulling out a caisson. We uh, we pulled a few uh, flare ship QRF missions on caisson and got to sleep through rocket and mortar attacks. Um, that was always thrilling. Uh-huh. Um and then I flew, I flew a CCN mission um, into Laos, uh, South Vietnamese border area, up near the tri-border area, uh, in 
I want to say May or June, um, where we took uh, flak. We actually took flak, 37 millimeter. Uh, wow. Uh, if I could describe a particular CCN mission, and that this last mission was one of the ones that I'd like to describe to you. Sure. We showed up for the MACV or the uh, special ops special operations compound for our briefing. And the briefing was there was a team going in that we were going to go pick up. They had captured a courier on a bicycle. Uh, he had been riding a bicycle down the Ho Chi Minh trail and we we're going to go get him. So we go into this LZ with two aircraft to pick up this special forces team. Sure enough, they have, there's a bicycle laying on the side of the trail. There's this guy, tied up that they threw on a helicopter. And um, we started taking a lot of fire coming out of the LZ. Um, but as we climbed up above the trees, I, I heard this thump noise, thump, thump, thump noise. And I looked back and I could see flat, just like on 12 o'clock high, I saw this flat yeah. coming up at us. And I yelled to the uh, aircraft commander, I said, you better start zigzagging because they have our altitude and I, they have our range because the flak was coming up between us and the second helicopter out of the LZ. Oh, yeah. So it got a little dicey there, but um, the intelligence that uh, the special ops guys would get was amazing. I don't know how they got all their information, but uh we had one CCN mission where we went across the border because they got word that there was some uh, North Vietnamese uh, high-ranking guy inspecting an anti-aircraft gun, and they went in and took out the people on the anti-aircraft gun and captured this guy, and we brought him back across the border. Those were always – I always felt like I was uh, doing something pretty high speed, and uh, I, I liked it. It was an adrenaline rush, that was for sure. Um, sure. Uh, I, I never quite uh, – was able to duplicate that, but, uh, that was, it was definitely a rush to fly those kind of missions. Yeah. Um, after lumps on the, uh, 101st went back into Asia Valley. Um, and we did a bunch of, uh, combat assaults into the Asia Valley and, uh, with American troops. Um, I can remember, doing one ash and trash mission, resupplying some grunts in the lowlands, and we got a frantic call to uh, medevac uh, some people that had set off a 2,000-pound uh, booby trap. And uh, mm. we were right over the spot where it happened, so we dropped in to pick these guys up. A medevac helicopter had already picked up the critical wounded and they threw these guys south. These were all South Vietnamese uh, Marines. Uh, threw them on the helicopter, and you know they were. Uh, I know. Remember, it was raining just a, a bit, so they had them wrapped in ponchos. So we're trying to keep these guys dry, laying them on the floor of the Huey, and uh, we pulled out. We head back to hospital at uh, the helipad, uh, medevac pad at Quang Tree, and I had one Arvin soldier's head kind of on my lap uh, trying to shelter him from the rain. Mm. And uh, he motioned to me like he wanted a cigarette. So I, uh, I put a cigarette in his mouth and I lit it and he brought his arm up to, uh, to smoke that cigarette. And uh, 
he didn't have a hand. It had been blown off. Oh, wow. And uh, it, I, I don't know that he even knew that because right. this, when he saw that, he immediately went into shock. And I, I don't know what the outcome was, but once we got him to the the, the, the uh, helipad, the medevac helipad, they were taken off the helicopter. But uh, that was a memory that was uh, sealed in my mind forever. And you were, I mean, how old at this time? I'm 19 or 20 years old. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say this. Uh, uh, Army aviation uh, kind of was in its infancy as we know it and what has evolved into what you are now experiencing. But those guys that flew helicopters in Vietnam and uh, – and the crews that uh, flew those missions um, really established the doctrine of uh, helicopter warfare. And, and uh, I don't think – I know without them, they, they would not have been able to have fought the war the way they did. No, there's a lot of innovation that happened during that time period. A lot of a lot of lives lost learning things, as sure. we kind of talked about at the beginning. But um, – yeah, I mean, a lot of things that, that you experienced as a as a 19-year-old, you know, basically still being practiced today and refined a little bit here and there. But bare bones, it's it's the same kind of concept. So, yeah. You know. Finishing up in Vietnam, I mean, like I said, so Lamson occurred. You kind of went back into the normal routine and and then what headed back to the States and that was it? Yeah, I got I, – I, uh, I went to Vietnam on the 4th of July, right around the 4th of July, and I came back on the f- right around the 4th of July. Um, mm. We ended up uh, – int- my interesting – I hopped a ride on a loach, an OH-6, from uh, Camp Evans down to uh, Fubai, and then I hopped on a uh, convoy, a, a truck convoy, to get down to Da Nang, and then I was going to fly from Da Nang down to uh, Cameron Bay, which is where I would process out. But so on the on the convoy ride through the, I think it was called the Mangang Pass. I'm not sure right along the coast there on Vietnam. We got ambushed. <laughs> so I uh, I'm sitting in this truck with no weapon because I'm going home, and I'm thinking right. to myself, he was. I lived through all this stuff and now I'm going to get shot riding in a yeah. truck get, trying to get out of here. So, yeah, but the ambush didn't take too long. It was uh, very short lived. So luckily I didn't, it didn't get too more, too much more terrifying than just an instant. So all this time that you've been flying around the back, were you already thinking about, I want to be a pilot or. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, um, uh, I, uh, I, I bootlegged just a lot of stick time. And, um, while I was there, I went on maintenance test flights. And, uh, hmm. um, so I, I could hover a Huey. I could fly a Huey. In fact, uh, the company commander, Major Lloyd, um, actually told me, he said, you want to go to flight school? Um, I'll make it happen. And, hmm. uh, so. Yeah, I I had made up my mind that I was going to go back to flight school or not go back to flight school. When I got back, I was going to go to flight school. Right. Okay. 
So, so you got back to the states, and you said you took a took a year off, and then, then I took a year back. off. I, I applied for uh, OCS, um, got accepted uh, through the reserves. I applied mm-hmm. for warrant officer flight uh, active duty, and the reserve uh, OCS thing came through. So I went to OCS Fort Sill, Oklahoma, got my commission, uh, officer basic course at Fort Sill. And then I put in for flight school and, uh, and I got accepted for flight school, went to flight school in 78. And, uh, then I uh, ended up with the uh, Rhode Island, uh, National Guard, which was a cab, cab troop for eight years. And then, um, all this time I, I was doing my civilian. I went to back to school, Daniel Webster College and, uh, Got my civilian ratings and I ended up, um, uh, pretty much just a reserve bum for a while with the guard. And I ended up getting a job flying the news helicopters in Boston. And then, uh, and then DARPA was running a program with MIT Lincoln Laboratories, uh, up in Boston and they needed a Mike model gunship, which, uh, the Rhode Island Guard had been tasked to, uh, supply and myself and another guy were going to be put on active duty to go fly this uh, test program for DARPA. And uh, we went up to MIT, interviewed, and we saw that they had a hangar full of airplanes with all kinds of antennas and stuff hanging off them. And we said, who flies these? And they said, well, <laughs> we have contract pilots that fly them. So we approached uh, DARPA and Department of the Army and MIT and said, we're both civilian rated. We can still fly the DARPA program, uh, because we're in the reserve or in the guard in Rhode Island. Um, and MIT can use us to fly these other programs. Would, would that be satisfactory for MIT and for, um, DARPA and the army? And they all said yes. So we, instead of going on active duty, we, uh, we flew as contractors to do the DARPA program and we flew the other programs and I got a chance to fly a wide variety of airplanes and uh, do a lot of testing, tested the early uh, TCAF collision avoidance system uh, in its mm-hmm. infancy, uh, did um, a lot of uh, uh, cruise missile testing up in Canada, low level flying 50 feet off the ground for hundreds of miles. Cruise and, missile uh, testing. Yeah, it was awesome. And then like, flew. Like, you got to go into that. What do you, what do you mean? <laughs> well, um, cruise missile technology, one of the things they were testing was using, uh, some sort of a laser guidance to measure the distance of the actual missile above the ground. Hmm. Um, and because the train up near Calgary, Canada resembles that of the Soviet Union, miles and miles, hundreds of miles of uh, wheat fields, that was where they chose to do the testing for this guidance system. And we had a uh, uh, Shrike Commander 500. Um, if anybody's watched the old Bob Hoover aerobatic uh, shows where he feathers an engine and pours himself a glass of tea, that's a Shrike Commander, and that's what we had. And uh, we had a laser uh, uh set up in the back with an operator and it would come out the side of the airplane and hang down below the aircraft. And then I would fly a predetermined track at 50 feet AGL 
for sometimes 50 to 100 miles. And then at mm-hmm. the end of that, we would turn around to a 9270 and come back around and do the same thing again. And uh, it was to test to make sure that this uh, cruise missile would uh, track or be able to measure uh, how high it was above the ground to avoid uh, obstacles, I, I would imagine. I, right. A lot of the stuff I did uh, at MIT testing, they only let the pilot know what they wanted the airplane to do, not so much what the test was all, all about. Because uh, right. we did a, we had a, a Navajo with a side-looking radar, SLAR radar hanging out the bottom of it. Um, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen these uh, pictures of the KC-135 with uh, a phased array antenna going down the side of the aircraft. Well, we tested that on a twin otter before it ever. Oh, like a like Air a J stars or something. Yeah, and then we did an Air Force jamming uh, uh, um, test program where we actually, um, instead of dropping chafe, we towed a a wire that was a mile long behind the aircraft. And uh, we only did that at night off the coast of Maine because it actually jammed the, ra- the FAA radar. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and we used to laugh at ourselves, you know, because we couldn't reel it back in, so we would cut it loose. Um, I, th- I think that's how it worked. Maybe it was because if we couldn't reel it back in, we'd cut it loose. But I always used to chuckle. I go, I can imagine a lobster fisherman off the coast of Maine, all of a sudden a mile of wire lands on his boat and wondering where yeah. that came from. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess for the, the cruise missile thing, you were essentially flying the profile of the missile. Is that that's what- correct. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. That sounds like fun. Yeah, it was. It was some of the uh, – most fun I ever had. We had a we had a twin otter with a um, they removed a couple of the belly fuel tanks and they put an SR seventy one camera in and I flew around uh, low level in that taking pictures. Um, I'm sure that had some uh, DARPA uh, you know spook thing that MIT was working on for the uh, military. Yeah, um, a lot of a lot of cool stuff. Um, uh, most, like I said, most of the stuff was uh, theor- theoretical that they were trying to implement and would later become, uh, you know, smart bomb technology or uh, jamming for the for the military. Yeah. Hmm. And what what years were you doing this? Roughly? Uh, I was doing that uh, in the 80s, 80, 80, 1980 to eighty five, and then I got recruited to go fly corporate job flying an S-76 and a Sabreliner and a Falcon 50 in uh, New Jersey, and I've been a corporate pilot ever since then. But at, so, at the same time, I maintained my uh, currency is in the reserves and in the guard with the, uh, with the Army. Mm-hmm. And then you came back into the Army once September 11th kicked That's off correct. everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm a I'm a volunteering fool. <laughs> so, what were you doing when you, when you came back on? Uh, you came on active duty. I did well. It, it was uh, when I volunteered to come back in the reserves because the reserves really ran the fixed wing ops over in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason why fixed wing was it because they wouldn't take me back. They they ref, they refused to send me to an a, Apache transition or uh, a Blackhawk transition. <laughs> um, so, but they did say with your uh, fixed wing experience, you know, we can use you on that side of the house, but you have to go back through Army uh, fixed wing uh, mm-hmm. school. And I said, well. And, you know, at the time I had 16,000 hours of fixed wing time. So, <laughs> uh, I said, well, isn't there an abbreviated course I can do? Because I, I kind of have a lot of a fixed wing experience. They said, no, you have to go through the whole program. And, uh, I said, well, how long is that? And they said, 90 days. I said, okay, <laughs> 90 days at Fort Rucker. I can do that. And, and I had a great time going through the fixed wing course, but I think I, I told you that, uh, I, I arrived down there all excited because I was going back in the army. I was doing some active duty, uh, going to get to fly a uh, uh, fixed wing for the army and go to Iraq. And I figured, if, you know, the army's changed so much since the last time I got out. Because when I got out in 97 or 98 of the reserves, we didn't have a CAC card back then. We had a regular ID card. So all this was new to me, CAC cards. Yeah. And everything was computer generated. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I found out the army had not changed a whole hell of a lot. <laughs> yeah. You were, you were telling me a story about the go, go to this place and sign in, but they're closed. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you want me to relate that story? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. So I showed up at Fort Rucker a day early than I was supposed to, because I'm an eager guy and, uh, I go in, I pick up my uh, student packet. Um, I found out we we're going to be training out at Dothan. So I said, no, no problem. There's a, uh, uh, Marriott uh, residence in and I checked in there and I was quite comforted to find out that there were Air Force and Marine and Navy guys who were flying C-12s that were going through the, um, recurrent course that were all staying there. So I TDY, I was in the right place. So the next day I show up to sign in and they tell me that, um, we, we can't sign you and your class in because we're, too busy, so come back tomorrow. Wear your PT gear because you got to do a PT test and a drug test. So we all did. Came back the next day, and of course we did all the drug tests, PT tests, and then they said, Cassalia, um, where are you staying? I said, Well, I'm staying at the uh, Marriott Residence Inn in Dothan because we're going to be training out there. And they said, Well, you can't stay there. Well, why can't I stay there? And it's because we have a we have a uh, contract with the Holiday Inn Express. I said, well, I'm here for 90 days. The Holiday Inn Express is one room with a microwave. How do we do that? And they said, well, this is what we have, so you have to do that. And there was a major there, West Point graduate who had just come back from Iraq or Afghanistan, hadn't seen his family in a year and a half, and he was bringing them there, and he also objected to the uh, Holiday Inn Express experience. But we ended up losing the battle, the argument, so we went to the Holiday Inn Express. But they also said, hey, you need to go back over to the company area and you need to sign in at these two rooms because uh, you didn't sign in there when you came in the other day. So I marched over to the company uh, building. I go to the first room on the second floor and I go to sign in and the guy at the desk said, uh, oh, you can't sign in here. You have to go to the uh, room upstairs on the third floor and sign in there first, which I promptly went upstairs, 
went to that room. There's a big sign on the door. It said closed on Fridays because this was Friday. I went back downstairs to that room and I said, uh, that room's closed. It's closed on Fridays. He goes, yeah, I know. I said, why did you send me up there? He goes, because you have to go up there. I go, I'm going to go out on a limb and ask you a question here. Is there a reason why I have to go to that room first? And he goes, yes. I go, what? He goes, because it's before you come here. And I go, does anything that I do in that room upstairs have anything to do with what I do here? And he goes, no. And I go, why do I have to sign in that way? He goes, because that's the way it is on the list. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very army. Very army. So you finish up school. I imagine you probably have more hours in the fixed wing than any of your instructors do. Uh, Pretty close. I mean, there were some old dogs there that had been flying uh, uh, fixed wing airplanes for a long time. But I, I had a, my uh, stick buddy happened to be the uh, West Point major who had a lot of uh, fixed wing time on it that he he was a uh, prior fixed wing guy before he went to uh, West Point so he had a lot of experience so we we had a great time um, it, it was a 90 day vacation for me it was kind of fun you know I got to I got to relax and enjoy enjoy flying the training syllabus was uh, really a non-event. But there were, you know, we had guys in the, in my class that were coming right out of uh, rotary ring uh, uh, training at Fort yeah. Rucker that um, had never flown a fixed wing before. So for them, it was a little little more tedious. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to Iraq, they made me a UT right away. And again, my overlapping uh, brief with the Army previous to this and uh, – and my civilian training kind of took over, and I I was flying a mission with a young captain who had very little fixed wing time. And I said, uh, "Hey, we got still got some time, still got some gas in the airplane. You want to go back and do some touch and goes at uh, Spiker?" And of course, he was all over that. So we're doing closed traffic at Spiker. Did five or six takeoffs and landings with this guy, and uh, touch and goes landed. And, came back and the SIP came up to me and said, well, how do you like being a UT? I go, I love it. I, he goes, why do you love it so much? I go, because if I have enough gas, come back and do uh, touch and goes with these guys, get them, get them some landings. And he goes, yeah, you're not allowed to do that. That's IP only. You're supposed to do that. So, oh, Lord. So I, that was the end of my uh, having fun. Yeah. I mean, wow, that's silly. It's landings for crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, uh, I, I guess they didn't want me uh, exposing myself to uh, an accident or something. I guess. Uh, so, so what was your? I mean, what what were you doing? Fixed wing? You were doing? Uh, we're doing yeah, uh, yeah, the ISR mission. We were. Uh, we did uh, two different, uh, or three different missions. We did. Uh, Route reconnaissance. We had a SLAR. We we carried pilot, co-pilot. Um, we had a top secret guy who sat right behind us, and when he was in the airplane, he would pull the curtain around, and uh, we couldn't see what he was doing. Um, usually, that top secret person spoke. Uh, not usually, always spoke uh, some dialect of uh, Arabic, mm-hmm. and then we had a what we called a baller in the back. And that person operated a, a, 
a ball turret that would drop down below the aircraft and it had the capability of uh, sparkling a target, uh, lasing a target, um, and it had an IR camera on it where we could, uh, we could, you know, see what was going on. I like to fly most of, I volunteered to fly most of my missions at night because if anything was going to go down, it was usually going to go down at night. Yeah. Um, I didn't particularly care for flying over Fallujah, uh, in the daytime because uh, we used to, we call that, uh, trolling for missiles over Fallujah because they, <laughs> they did have man pads in the area. Fortunately for us, most of those man pads had been not taken care of or had been mm-hmm. buried. So they didn't work. And my entire time in Iraq, um, I only was shot at once that I know of, uh, with a man pad. I actually saw it come off the, launcher and corkscrew into the air which was the telltale designation but it never sped up to speed and just mm. kind of died wow. um, we did have the uh the our missile warning system the flares go off a few times which would always get your attention but uh yeah i don't yeah i don't know that that was really somebody tracking us or Maybe a welder on the ground doing something. I don't know, but uh, yeah, they seem to kind of go off on their own. Yeah, but it, it definitely gets the heart going the first couple times. Sure, sure. Hmm. But and uh, so the missions would be: we would go in, uh, get our brief, weather brief uh, mission. Usually, we're looking for somebody who is either uh, bringing weapons, uh, uh, building IEDs. Maybe this is a guy that. Uh, uh, built an IED, set it off, set it off, and killed some uh, troops or wounded some troops, and they we had been able to track him back to mm-hmm. where he where he lived, and they were monitoring him. Usually, the guy in the back, not usually the guy in the back, the uh, the top secret guy behind the pilots um, was monitoring his conversations, uh, mm-hmm. and they could they were. We'd usually track this guy or fly around this guy's uh, operations area for a week or two because they always wanted to find out who he was talking to and who he was affiliated with so they get capture more people. Yeah. Um, when I first got there, we were able – they had the capability of lasing a target and then having the Apaches come in and take him out, but uh, – they stopped doing that and just sent in ground troops to uh, go get these guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's they, how you build that intelligence pictures. Oh yeah. Listening and watching and talking yeah. to them once you grab them. So yeah. Oh yeah. There, there was a civilian contractor there. Their sole purpose was that they took a shorts, uh, 360, uh, airplane, turboprop airplane, and they uh, had a camera that would lower out the side, hang out the bottom of it, and they would literally fly a grid square over Baghdad or Fallujah, and they always had one in the air, and it would film the whole area. And if there was an IED that went off, they would simply run the film where the IED went off and see who drove Mm. there, and they could, the camera was pretty high-speed camera. They could figure out uh, what kind of car this guy drove to plant the IED, and then they would backtrack to see where it came from. And it was it was pretty cool how they would find these guys. Yeah. Um, 
and that was all part of uh it was all part of our feed to our briefings to when we would go in and we would fly around we would fly around a target area probably uh i want to say two to three mile radius um for hours uh just listening and watching what this guy was doing and then um if it was time to take him out then we would be there to to guide the ground forces in and uh, watch, make sure they provide overwatch for them. Yeah, the, the sheer volume of of aircraft like that overseas is staggering. And you know, as a as a dumb helicopter guy just kind of flying around in Iraq, you you knew there was things because sometimes they they'd come from your base. I remember I was up in Missoula in uh, 06, 07, and we had uh, one or two. What are they all? Cessna Skymasters, where it had like the prop in the front and the back. Yeah, they were they um, were there when I was there. Yeah, 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 and they were you know flying around, and you you'd see those those guys, crusty old contractors in their desert flight suits in the chow hall and stuff, and uh, and then last time I was in Iraq, same same kind of thing. You'd see these guys, and you you know you talk to them. Well, who do you work for? And like, oh, you know, people. But um, <laughs> the sheer volume of, of those types of aircraft flying around and doing stuff that you, you just don't really know about because, you know, you're getting your daily brief and, you know, there's F-16s or F-22s or something kind of overhead. And here's the freak if you need need help. But uh, there's there's always seems to be a bunch more kind of hidden hidden guys with cameras and antennas doing stuff. So that's pretty neat. Uh, well, you're exactly right. I actually have took a picture of my TCAS in the in the C-12 and it had six or seven targets because all those people, all those assets had some sort of transponder on it. And so it was mm-hmm. able to show up on the TCAS. And I had six or seven of those within three mile radius of me. And, wow. you know, that's, you would never see that in, yeah. uh, in the, you know, even here in the United States. Yeah. Uh, my worst fear was having a midair with a, a Reaper or, or a, uh, mm. a drone of some sort, and almost did over Mosul one night. I had one go by me uh, within 300 feet of me, wow. and I called Kingpin and said, "Hey, we just had a aircraft go by within 500 feet of us." And he goes, "Well, he saw you." And I go, "I can <laughs> I know by his call sign that that was a uh, drone with Hellfires." So. There's no yeah. pilot on board that airplane. Yeah, he didn't see nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we. Um, I had a friend of mine down in Kandahar, and they had a uh, a shadow UAV fly right between him and his wingman. You know, they were pretty extended out, flying 58s. But uh, just, here comes a shadow, just zipping along, and flies right between them. And I, I remember one time looking up in my uh, the glass, you know, canopy above me on the 58 little greenhouse, and and there was a shadow, you know, uh, a couple hundred feet above me. But, yeah, it's unnerving. You know, a couple hundred feet is, is close when it comes to aviation. Sure it is. Sure it is. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, compare and contrast your experience between Vietnam so many years before to your experience in Iraq. I mean, it must have been just in a lot of ways uh, similar, but in a, a lot of ways just complete night and day. It was. Um, I certainly um, – have to say for an old guy going back in and being with uh, the youngsters and and being being back and flying uh, was awesome. I uh, I truly enjoyed it. I, if I hadn't timed out for age, I'd still be doing it. Um, hmm. I, uh, I I loved being 
uh, an army aviator and, uh, it's one of the high points of my life. Um, but the difference between Vietnam and, and Iraq is, uh, the same in some ways. Uh, we, Im- we flew into Vietnam to our duty station on a C-130. I did the same thing in Iraq. Um, <laughs> that didn't change. Um, I processed in in the middle of the night. Same thing I did in Vietnam. Processed in in the middle of the night. Um, I think we alluded to some of the army-isms that just don't change. Uh, <laughs> nomenclature changed. Because when I was in the army and, uh, previous to this, it was called a mess hall. When I came back in, it's called a DFAT. Uh, <laughs> when I was in Vietnam, it was called, uh, uh, division headquarters. Uh, in, v- in Iraq, it was called, uh, D-Main. So mm-hmm. I had to learn a whole new language in some cases in order to function properly, uh, <laughs> in, in the newer army, the computer army. Um, we had, uh, quarters in Vietnam as uh, air crew. We had, they were just, uh, really, uh, wooden shacks with screen walls and then, uh, a sandbag, uh, bunker, sandbag, uh, bunker that went up the side of it and then some sandbag across the ceiling or across the uh, roof to protect us from, uh, rockets and mortars. And then, of course, in uh, Iraq, you had those HESCOs, which were pretty ingenious, you know, a, a chain link fence with a burlap lining, fill it up with dirt. Yeah, uh, yeah. giant sandbag. Perfect, perfect thing. Um, we, uh, of course, you weren't allowed to drink in Iraq, but uh, somehow that managed to make its way into the field of, uh, into the <laughs> AO. Um I found that out like 15 minutes after I got to my unit. So uh, (laughs) I thought that was pretty amazing. Um, You know, you had a gym to work out in in Iraq, which uh, I enjoyed. You know, my routine in Iraq, especially flying at night, was awesome. I'd get up at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning. I'd have a cup of coffee. I would uh, uh, Skype call home to my family, uh, go to the gym, work out for an hour and a half, two hours, go to the chow hall, have lunch, have them make me a sandwich for the flying that night, go back to my room, take a shower and uh, catch the bus out to be out the flight line by uh, 3 4 o'clock to start my mission brief and prepare for our night, night hop. Um, and it was just like, you know, Groundhog Day every day. The only time it would change is if uh, we had a severe uh, sandstorm come through or something. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I I found major major differences. I really really lobbied with the battalion commander to get me into a scout helicopter or uh, <laughs> let me ride in the front seat of a, a Apache because that was my that's where I came from. I, I never flew the Apache, but I flew Cobras or gunships and uh, scout helicopters before. But um, I, I wanted to go and see what what that aspect of the war was and yeah. uh, see how much it changed. Yeah, it's your heritage. You want to kind of see see the lineage as it, yeah. as it moved along. Yeah. Oh, well, that's uh, an incredible military career. And, of course, you're you're still flying. You're still doing the corporate thing. 
Yeah, flying a Gulfstream 650, uh, fastest corporate jet on the planet, and uh, enjoying it. And I'm yeah. and I'm going to help you try to find a civilian career. I, I'm I'm all about it, and uh, and hopefully here we'll we'll get to meet in person because uh, I'm going to be up up north, and you're going to be up north. So yeah, we'll definitely have to get together and have a beer and tell some stories. And absolutely, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Well, this has been great. Um, I'm sure that we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but it has been an hour and a half already. Um, so I think we'll wrap it up here. And uh, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time on a Saturday before you're heading out on your your trip. And um, and uh, thank you for your service in just so many ways. I mean, to, to there's not a lot of guys who, who served in Vietnam and then got to raise their hand and say, hey, I'm going to go back and, and do some more stuff in Iraq and so uh, I know that the the effort, you know, politics aside, the the effort over there is is was definitely better off for for guys like you who were able to to continue to lend what they what they'd learned all throughout their lives and in, in previous conflicts. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, listen, like I said, I'd still be doing it, but I timed out. <laughs> well, you don't want to do that new PT test anyway. <laughs> I would love to go fly a fifty eight uh, uh, again or. I flew 58, yeah. but not like you did. But I, I would love yeah. to go fly one of those, uh, the newer ones. Or do they even have them anymore? Oh, no, we got rid of them. Uh, you're going to have to go to like Greece or Tunisia to fly one. In fact, the very last 58 I flew was painted uh, for the Tunisian army. That's oh. how I got it. Yeah. Wow. I uh, I happened to be at Fort Hood where they had a paint shop. And uh, I happened to notice on Facebook that one of my old pilots uh, who had been a you know, a junior pilot when I was a, a troop commander, he was, you know, W3, W4 at this point or something. And he was flying uh, aircraft out to Fort Hood to get them painted because he worked at Redstone where they were decommissioning them all. And I talked to him and I hadn't flown a 58 in, at this point three or four years. I was an Apache guy now. And, you know, the problem was when I left flying 58s, uh, it wasn't going away. You know, it was, I was leaving for a non-flying job at Fort Benning and I always just assumed that, you know, after a couple of years, I'll go back to wherever and, and fly. And, uh, that's when the whole divestiture happened. And so I, I never had that last flight in a 58. And so, wow. uh, when I found out he was bringing them out the hood, you know, I, I started talking to him and, and I think he even offered, he's like, Hey, you want to go for a flight? I was like, yes, yes, I do. So I met him out there at the paint shop and he'd had one that had the big star and a crescent or, you know, whatever Tunisia had. And we hopped in it and flew around Fort Hood for an hour and he didn't know where he was going. And I was brand new to Fort Hood. And I was like, well, I only know like two places. So we'll, I know where I know how to get us over here. <laughs> kind of tooled around. But, yeah, it was good to fly the old bird. I mean, she's not fast, but, you know, I always tell people uh, speed is relative. When you're right over the treetops, 90 knots seems pretty fast. Sure does. Sure does. And it was it pretty maneuverable. It had a four bladed system on it, right? Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was very maneuverable and you could, you could turn pretty tight. In fact, yeah. we used to fly with Apaches and, uh, uh, do like a, like pink teams, you know, like they did in, in Vietnam and stuff. And, uh, we would do that in Afghanistan and the Apaches had such a hard time keeping track of us because they just weren't used to it. It wasn't anything wrong with the Apache. They just weren't used to that type of flying. Yeah. So, uh, we, uh, I, I called my guys the flying circus cause we would take, um, spray paint and we painted lines on top of the blades so that they the apache guys could look down and and you know see the contrast sure zipping around on her but yeah yeah she's a fun little bird it'd be nice to hop in one one more time but yeah they're all over the place i think i think they've you know they sold some to greece they sold some to tunisia 
Um, I'm not sure where else. I know they sent a bunch to the boneyard, unfortunately, yeah. and there's a few, you know, sticking on poles outside of headquarters and things here and there. But, um, yeah, she was a good old bird. Well, you know, there's, my dad used to say, there's an old, that, uh, you know, you're getting to be an old aviator when all the stuff you flew is sitting on a pole or in a museum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why you'll you'll stay forever young because the Huey, I don't think it's ever going to go away. I don't think so. I don't think so. I said that saying where they fly the last Blackhawk that they're going to fly the crew back on a Huey. Yeah, on a Huey, on a Huey. <laughs> I, I, a friend of mine worked on the test uh, programs out of uh, Lakers, Navy Lakers, and they had two Hueys. And he was the mm-hmm. last SIP in the Army on Hueys. And he invited me down to go fly the Huey. So we, hmm. I went down and, and uh, he goes, well, we're going to go do some auto. He get, had to do auto rotations. So we had to go do some autos and stuff. And uh, it was great to get anything. And I, he handed me the controls right off the bat. He said, go ahead, pick it up to a hover. And we hovered out. And I asked him, I said, uh, I, I got a question to ask you. And he goes, what's that? I go, I don't remember it shaking this bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh that's funny you say that because I, I had a hydraulics failure and uh, I hadn't test I hadn't flown with hydraulics off at this point in almost a decade because it wasn't something that we did in the 58. Yeah. Um, you did it in flight school they turn off the hydraulics but once you got out into an operational unit they never they never did it yeah. and uh, but we lost hydraulics and I just didn't remember the tail feeling the way it felt and so then I thought there was something wrong with the tail as well. And I, I told my left seater, I was like, man, I think, I think the tail rotor's messed up too. And he's, oh my God, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's nighttime, you know, we're under goggles. Yeah. Uh, well, sir, I appreciate all the time. I really enjoyed speaking with you and I enjoyed our conversation the other day. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to meeting you in person soon. Absolutely. Stay in touch by all means. And uh, let's get together. Uh, first round of beers on me. Absolutely, sounds great. Maybe, maybe even the second round. Well, Dave is awesome, and I can say that he is the only guest that I've actually met in person. So I drove up to uh, Teterboro in New Jersey uh, a couple, I guess about a week and a half ago at this point, uh, and met with him in person. And uh, he is a great dude. We had a, a good time just chatting. He showed me uh, the jet that he flies, the uh, Gulfstream, which was amazing. They let me uh, push the buttons in there and help them shut it down after their flight from from London, I think. And uh, and went out to lunch and, and just had a good time with him. And uh, look forward to spending some more time with him while I'm up here in the Northeast. Uh, hopefully go uh, take a flight or two with him in his plane. So anyway, as promised, uh, I thought I'd just give kind of a, a rundown update of this whole flight school experience for me. Uh, coming into, uh, it's called Infinity Flight Group. It's part of uh, Mercer Community College up here in Trenton, New Jersey. And uh, they've got, uh, of course, the normal sort of flight school students that are going through Mercer uh, College and then, and then getting flight training. But they also have a uh, RTP or Rotary Transition Program for guys like me who, you know, have at least, I think the number is 700 hours. You know, I've got uh, 25, I think, 100 uh, rotary wing hours. And I did have my private uh, fixed wing license with about 40 hours to my name, uh, but you don't need that. You can walk right into it uh, as long as you've got the rotary time, and they just kind of throw you right into it. But uh, it is pretty intense. So uh, I guess to give you context, I think we started flying on the 6th or 7th of September, and I want to say it was around the 14th of October is when I took my final commercial and instrument check ride. 
Um, and so that's, you know, about a month. And if you factor in the fact that we had at least a week of weather uh, delays in the middle of all that, that, that's a pretty intense flight schedule. So we were flying uh, multiple times a day. Uh, and, and again, like I said, it's really built for uh, people that, that don't even have their fixed wing license at all. So the other two guys in my group uh, came here with, with zero f- fixed wing experience. And I think they checked about a week or so after me um, just because they had to fly a little bit extra and kind of figure out those landings because landing an airplane is uh, decidedly different than, than landing a helicopter. Everything else is, is pretty much the same, you know, obviously no hovering. Uh, but yeah, so we flew our tails off. I mean, I want to say uh, when I checked, I had about 77 hours that I had flown since I'd gotten here. Uh, and now I've entered the second phase of training. In fact, I just started last night as uh, recording this. Uh, where it's a base, basically just time building. So we just, just fly. You know, they basically give you the airplane for a certain period of time. You're already licensed, so you can go fly VFR. Uh, or if, uh, if there's clouds and stuff and you want to jump in the clouds, you've got to take uh, uh, one of the instructors with you and you just kind of just go fly. But um, I'll be doing that here for the next couple months, building up my time so I can uh, pad my resume and get a job. Um, happy to say that I've had a, a few... Um, Positive conversations, one sort of offer and then one uh, sort of hinted promise at an offer once I finish up some training. So I'm looking forward to to doing that and uh, kind of making that transition from the military. Anyhow, I'll keep you guys updated as we go. Uh, Again, looking to do uh, these, you know, once a month or so, not really a set schedule. I just... Yeah, I just, it's stressful. Uh, it's not hard to do a podcast, but it is stressful to find guests and the right guests. And then syncing up the timing so that they can actually come on when you're available. And of course, with my schedule here, it's just getting kind of weird. So, uh, I don't want to make any promises, but uh, I appreciate you guys listening. I appreciate, uh, all the new listeners. If you're new to the show, you know, go back and listen to some of the other episodes and get caught up. And, uh, of course, a huge thank you to all the Patreons who support the show. Uh, it really means a lot to me. So, Well, as always, uh, the comments made by the guests and hosts represent themselves, do not represent the Department of Defense or any private businesses. I appreciate you guys listening and contributing, and we will talk to you soon. Take care.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.